Psalm 73 and commencing at the first verse. Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. But as for me, my feet were almost gone, my steps had well nigh slipped. For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no bounds in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride compasseth them about as a chain, violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness, they have more than heart could wish. They are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily, they set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walketh through the earth. Therefore his people return hither, and waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. And they say, How doth God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly, who prosper in the world, they increase in riches. Verily I have cleansed my heart in vain, and washed my hands in innocency. For all the day long have I been plagued, and chastened every morning. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places, thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation as in a moment? They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awaketh, so, O Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I and ignorant, I was as a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go a-whoring from thee. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all thy works. Ending our reading there at the end. Uh, of the psalm. Uh, Now, the first verse of the psalm is the psalmist's conclusion. That sounds a little bit odd uh, to put it that way, uh, because sometimes you think of conclusion as being the end. It's finished, but conclusion also has the idea of the conclusion that you have drawn from what has gone before. Uh, It is your considered opinion It is your verdict. And that really is what we have here in verse 1. The psalmist, and he's going to tell us something about his feelings and how they were and how they changed and how he was ashamed of how he had been feeling. Well, he's going to tell us that. But before he tells us of how he was feeling and how his feelings were changed, he tells us, of the conclusion he had come to. And his conclusion is this, truly God is good to Israel, even to such are 
of a pure heart. So that word truly, it has the idea of verily, uh, really uh, of a truth. Uh, God is good to Israel. God is good to his people. You and I, I'm sure, will agree with the psalmist sentiment. God certainly, uh, of a truth, is good to his people. But then we need to put in the qualification here. We don't experience his goodness if we're not walking with him. Yes, he's good, even when we're not walking with him, but we don't experience it if our hearts are not right, if our hearts are not clean and pure in his sight. We constantly need to be putting up that cry, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Now I've said that's the psalmist's conclusion. But firstly, we want to see that before he came to that conclusion, he was tempted to give up. For he says, but as for me, God's good to Israel, but as for me, my feet were almost gone, my steps had well nigh slipped. You know what it's like when you get on a slippery slope and you can't keep your footing and you say, I almost went down there, maybe in the snow, uh, when the snow gets compacted uh, on the pavement and you're walking down very gingerly and you're afraid that you might fall. I can think of a time it happened to me many years ago, well over 50 years ago, I was working in the bank at the time and I came down Chapel Hill in Lisburn. I'd come, I was staying in lodgings there, I wasn't married at the time, and I came very gingerly down Chapel Hill, relaxed a little bit when I got to the bottom, and the two feet went from under me, and down I went. And I felt when I went past every shop door that everybody was laughing at me, which they probably were, because when you see somebody go down, you just can't help yourself. It seems so funny, and you do laugh. Well, as Sam was saying here, my feet were almost gone. Not literally. My steps had well nigh slipped. He's talking about a temptation to give up. And why was he tempted to give up? Well, he looked around me, and he, around him, sorry, and he says, I was envious at the foolish. And he says, I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And he thinks about the easy time that the ungodly were having. There are no bands in their death. Everything seems to go smoothly for them. And you can read right down uh, to verse 16, and there you will see the musings of the psalmist. He talks about how they speak against God, how they have no time for God. Uh, And yet uh, their, their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. And you can just read all the expressions of how the ungodly were prospering in the world. And they sailed through. They spoke contemptuously about God. How doth God see? We carry on. And they're really saying, there is no God to worry about. Uh, We're doing well. uh, And everything goes smoothly for us. Uh, We have plenty of money. You have trials and troubles. You're always fretful and downcast but we're not we're having a great time of it going through this life prospering and all is well with us and all seems to be ill with you and even when we come to death 
Now, I know this isn't universally true. The psalmist is speaking of particular people here. Even when they come to death, he says, there are no bands in their death. It's not as if they're constricted by trouble and thinking, oh dear, I've made a mistake. I've realized at the last minute that I wasn't right with God. And now eternity stares me in the face. I'm going to face an angry God. I'm going to be cast into hell. No, it's not that way at all. It seems there are no bands in their death. They just seem to glide from this world very easily. No difficulties, no troubles whatsoever. And the psalmist was ashamed, in a sense, of thinking that way. For he says in the verse 15, If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. That's the way he's been thinking. Uh, He says he has been afflicted, he has been tried, and he has had lots of troubles. The ungodly, they've had a smooth pathway through life. Everything seems to run in their favor. And I'm tempted to think uh, that it's all pointless. All my stand for what's right, what I believe to be right, all my following of the Lord, I'm tempted to give up. My feet uh, were almost gone, almost gone. I was almost swept away in the current. And then I paused. And I said to myself, if I say this, this skeptical way, uh, and speak of the, the ungodly in a way that shows envy of their position, if I speak like that, I should offend against the generation of thy children. So he, he's cautious Even though he's tempted to give way, he's cautious. He doesn't want to say it out because he realizes that if he does speak out and if he does start to criticize God and the way of holiness, he will cause others to stumble. People will listen to him. Maybe people who were thinking of getting right with God, they will say, well, there he is. And he has been a battler For God, he has witnessed to us. And now he doesn't seem to believe it. Now he's wondering if there's any profit in following the Lord. And so he's going to offend those who are thinking about their soul. And he's going to offend the people of God. He's going to offend the the young believer. I don't mean necessarily young in years. But the person who is young in the faith is going to offend them. Because they will look at him. He has been on the road perhaps for many years. And now he's beginning to doubt. But he's on the right road. Beginning to speak about uh, the service of God. And the fruitlessness of serving God. And the prosperity of the wicked. And he says if I say this. I'm going to cause offence. I'm going to put a stumbling block. In the pathway of the unsaved. So he's ashamed, in a sense, of thinking the way that he has been thinking. You can read down, as I said, to verse 14, and you'll see his troubles over against the prosperity of the wicked. And he's been listening to the blasphemous statements of the wicked, and he's in despair. He can't see a way through. And he feels uh, that it's not going to happen. He's disappointed with life and he is perplexed 
we can say, to the point of painfulness. I don't mean physical pain, but I mean uh, there's a deep, deep pain in his heart and soul. He says in the verse 16, when I thought to know this, when I thought about it and turned it over in my mind again and again and again, he says, it was too painful for me. It was labor, the margin says, in my eyes. It was weighing upon me as an enormous weight, and I was weighed down by it. And the point I want to make to you is this. It is easy, ever so easy, to get discouraged. Not necessarily the way the psalmist was discouraged, the prosperity of the wicked. You get disappointments in life. People that made a profession and you were full of hope for them and then they turn out to be a stony ground hearer. You know how that worked? The stony ground hearer, well that person was elated with the gospel. Can it be true? Can it be true that I'm saved from my sins, I'm bound for heaven and when I get there all will be well, my troubles will all be over. This is good. But Christ speaks about that hearer with joy, very quickly filled. And then persecution, tribulation ariseth on account of the word. And by and by, they are offended. There's no depth. No depth. It was just a false profession. Your hopes were built up on that person and that person disappoints you. And then there's another kind of hearer, and that is the person who's overtaken by the cares of this life. That's the thorny ground hearer, as Christ describes him or her. And that person, well, they seem to be growing more slowly than the stony ground hearer, but other things are growing alongside uh, the, the pressures of the world, the cares of the world, and many, many other things. They grow up like thorns and they choke. They choke the profession of that person. And that profession also turns out to be a false one. And how disappointed we are. Then sometimes, you know, we get disappointed with Christians. Christians can let us down. Christians can do things that they shouldn't do, say things that they shouldn't say, and they can cause offence to other Christians, and that can be so heartbreaking. You know, if our churches, and I'm not just talking about our denomination, but if the church, the evangelical church, were truly united the way it should be, then we wouldn't have so many offences occurring. And uh, when these things happen, don't your heart sink into your boots? You feel so disappointed when there's trials and troubles and uh, sorrows. And then we have our own failures. We have our own failures. You think sometimes you're nearly invincible. You're going on. I'd say, I'll never go down that road again. Oh, that grieved me when I went that way, when I failed in that way. I'll never do that again. And then you just sort of gradually slip into it. 
before you've had time almost to think. You're halfway down the road and you're a failure and you feel a failure. And then there's opposition to you because the devil is a very cunning adversary and a relentless adversary. The Apostle Peter said, and he had experience of this, be sober, be vigilant. He's really saying to us, you be wide awake, you be on your toes, because you have an adversary. And that word adversary that's found in 1 Peter 5 is a word that's found only five times in the New Testament. And on the other four occasions, it's an adversary in law. It's always in a legal setting. Agree with thine adversary quickly whilst thou art on the way with him, lest you're handed over to the magistrate and you're cast into prison and you have to stay there till you've paid the uttermost farthing. That's a legal setting that Christ describes. And four times the word adversary is found in a legal setting and the fifth time it's found, it's 1 Peter 5 and verse 8, your adversary. Now when you're in a court of law, you're up against very skilled opposition. If you're brought to court, let's say you're totally innocent, but there's an accusation against you. There you are, and you have a very skilled QC or KC as it is today, and that KC can almost make you doubt your own name. He or she is so skillful in making things appear the way that they want them to appear. So, and I'm not criticizing KCs or barristers in that way. They're there to do a job and they're there to probe you and you're nervous. And before you know where you are, uh, you, you hardly know where you are. So uh, there's opposition from the devil. He's your adversary. And the word devil is the word diabolus from which we get our word diabolical. You say, that's diabolical. Well, it literally means a false accuser. You're a false accuser. The devil is a false accuser. He's your skilled adversary. He's a false accuser. And then he can intimidate you. As a roaring lion walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. And when you're opposed and you're down and everything's going against you, Isn't there a temptation almost to give up? Don't we look at the state of the church as a whole and we say it's at a very low ebb. We're making so little progress. The world is is winning the battle where 50 or 60 years ago on a Sunday there was quietness. People didn't go out and cut their grass I'm really thinking of farmers here, but I might think of lawns as well. People didn't go out and cut their grass on uh, the Lord's Day. They didn't go out on the lawnmower to do it. And the farmer didn't go out into the field. Even Roman Catholic farmers, uh, by and large, had a respect for the day. In those days, when I was growing up, and that's more than 50 or 60 years ago, but when I was growing up, well, the main product in the summertime was hay rather than silage. And that required good weather, weather that was uh, sometimes denied. Uh, And there was a temptation for farmers to make hay on the Sunday because Monday's forecast wasn't good, but they wouldn't do it. They didn't do it. They held back 
from doing it. But today, everybody, it seems, everybody, it seems, is at it. When the farms have so much machinery, and they don't need to do uh, this work on the Lord's Day, yet many of them do. I know Christians are an exception, but many, many farmers go out into the fields on the Lord's Day when they really do not have to. And you might look at that, and you see your neighbours cutting their lawns on a Sunday or washing their cars on a Sunday. You see the shops opening, and they're heading away to the shops, and you say, our nation's sunk. And the state of the church, the state of the nation is, is terrible. And we hear constantly preachers preaching about revival. That doesn't happen. Uh, we hear of what God can do, and we don't see what God can do. We just get, perhaps now and then, a little glimpse, but the world's growing uh, in its antagonism to God, in its turning everything upside down, calling good evil and evil good. Don't we see it? And the laws that are being passed. And we say, what is the point? What is the point? There's a temptation not to pray because it doesn't work. And there's a temptation, if we do pray, to pray without any conviction that anything is going to happen. That's the sort of situation that the psalmist was in here. He says his feet were almost gone, his steps had well nigh slipped. And he says, I'm thinking it, I can't say it. He says, if I speak thus, I shall offend against the generation of his children. Uh, and he says, when I thought about it, it was too painful. It really, it really was a weight, a deep weight upon my heart. And when I say that nothing's happening, it's not because of God that nothing's happening. God hasn't changed. It's ourselves. We're the ones that have changed. So here is the temptation for the psalmist. A, a, a temptation to give up. But then I want you to notice, I'm happy to say, uh, th this is much more positive, I'm happy uh, to tell you that there was a turning point in the psalmist's experience. And you'll see that turning point uh, really from verse 17 through to verse 22. And there's a key word in verse 17. Uh, because he says in verse 16, uh, when I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. And then he says, until. That's the key word in it. Until. Uh, there it is. It's so depressing. It's overwhelming. I, I feel a pain, a deep pain in my heart uh, because of the situation. Everything's dark and bleak. Until. He says, until I went into the sanctuary of God. And there is the key for us, because we don't have to go into the sanctuary of God. The sanctuary of God speaks of the very presence of God. Going into the presence of God. Now, we, we have a battle sometimes to get into the presence of God. Some of the sweetest times of prayer begin 
uh, with almost a reluctance to pray and a hardness in our hearts. And we have a battle. We have a battle. We have a battle to fight with ourselves that I must pray and I must stay on my knees or if I'm sitting up and pray, I must stay here before God until the Lord draws near to me. I have to get into his presence. I have to. If I don't get into his presence, I'll be baffled, I'll be perplexed, I'll be bitter, and I'll be angry, and I'll feel like giving it all up. But if I get into God's presence, then everything will take on a completely different complexion. And that's what the psalmist is saying to us. He says, it was too painful for me until, until I went into the sanctuary of God. And now everything changes when he's in the presence of God. He saw what the prosperity of the wicked really amounted to. Look at what he says. Then understood either end. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation as in a moment? They are utterly consumed with terrors. Utterly consumed with terrors. Far from gliding into unconsciousness and into oblivion, really, they open their eyes as the rich man did in hell, being in torments. So uh, he sees what the true situation is in the presence of God. And that's where we alone will see uh, the true situation. You just look at the circumstances all around you uh, and you put your faith in, say, the people of God or you put your faith in your own uh, uh, standing before God. I'm not speaking of your actual standing. I'm speaking about how you think you are, that you're better than anybody else, that you're stronger than anybody else. And there's that element of pride. I don't do this. I don't do that. And we become self-righteous. Then suddenly we hit the rocks. And we're downcast, down in the valley, depressed, and we think it's pointless. Uh, maybe uh, we have a failure somewhere, and that brings us down. Or the devil uh, attacks us very viciously in our minds, and down we go. And we won't recover until we get into the presence of God. And the psalmist got into the presence of God, and he says, Then I understood their end. Far from gliding uh, into oblivion, they are conducted into the presence of God to stand before their maker in judgment. And he saw what the prosperity of the wicked amounted to. And indeed, in verse 21, he tells us that he was convicted and he was ashamed of himself. Thus my heart was grieved and I was pricked in my reins. And he says in verse 22, so foolish was I and ignorant. And he says, I was as a beast before thee. I was no better than a dumb creature, than a wild beast. So stupid I was. I was judging things by man's judgment. I was not judging things 
by the judgment of God. And everything has changed when he has come into the presence of God. And we could say that the great antidote to discouragement is to spend time in the presence of God. You know, it's a remarkable thing about the Psalms. That is that many of the Psalms begin in defeat and end in triumph. Take Psalm 3 as an example. Lord, how are they increased, David says, that trouble me? Many there be that rise up against me. Many there be that say of my soul, there is no help for him in God. And then he just puts in a pause, that word Selah. And he tells us, I cried unto the Lord with my voice. And he heard me out of his holy hill. He came into the presence of God. People talking about him. He's finished. God is finished with him. He says, I turned to God. I cried to God. He says, God is the one who's my shield. He's the one who lifts up my head. I cried to him. And the next thing, he is so at peace that he's able to say, I laid me down and slept. He had a good night's sleep. We could say he slept like a baby, even though his own son Absalom was trying to kill him. When he got into the presence of God, it seemed an enormous weight was lifted off his shoulders. And now he was at peace in his mind and heart and soul. And now he could go forward and say, Arise, O Lord. And he says, Smite the enemies upon the cheekbone. So the Lord has lifted the load from David's heart. And I say again to you, the greatest antidote to discouragement is to get into the presence of God. You'll find that, that weight lifting. And with many of those psalms, You'll come heavy laden in your mind and deeply distressed and depressed and you'll leave and you'll be almost walking on air. The Lord will have given you such relief. And that just leads me to one final brief point. Think of the transformation that took place in the psalmist's thinking. He started off thinking the wicked have it their way, all their own way. And now he begins to think differently. He says, nevertheless, when we go from verse 23 to 28, I am continually with thee. He says, God's with me. God's holding me up. And uh, he says, the Lord will guide me. The Lord will give me glory. I have a friend to direct my steps. A friend who when this life is over will be waiting to receive me I will enter glory. And all he wants now is God because he knows that God is all sufficient. I thought of uh, you know, that hymn that we often sing at the beginning of a year. God is all sufficient for the coming year. Well, the psalmist sees God as all sufficient for him. He says, whom have I in heaven but thee? No one. Really, uh, I know angels are there and God's people are there. Uh, but in reality, the one that really matters in heaven is the Lord. And he says, there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. 
God is sufficient. Sufficient to give me joy, sufficient to give me peace, sufficient to give me cleansing from my sins, sufficient to satisfy all the needs of my soul, to watch over me in this life, to direct my steps until I draw my final breath. And then he says as well uh, that afterward he'll be received to glory. He says, my flesh and my heart faileth. That's the way I am. I'm, I'm a weak, frail creature. But God is the strength of the margins, is the rock of my heart and my portion forever. Uh, and no longer does he envy the foolish. In verse 27 he says, For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go a-whoring from thee. And he's happy. He's happy with God. And on top of that, he speaks out for God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all thy works. Now, instead of speaking out and offending people, he's speaking out to glorify God, to point sinners to the Saviour. And when he reaches the end, well, he draws his conclusion. And the conclusion is the one that he puts in in verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel. I've been through my trials. I've been tempted. I failed and failed miserably. I, I, I felt like giving up. But then the sanctuary of God and the presence of God, I saw things in a completely different light. And the result was my heart was lifted. I was rejoicing. I saw how glorious it is to be saved. Whom have I in heaven but thee? There's none upon earth I desire beside thee. Uh, thou wilt guide me with thy counsel. Afterward receive me to glory. And I put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all thy works. Now you and I, we can say the same, can't we? No point being here. Well, unless you're seeking to have this experience. No point coming to the prayer meeting unless you can say in your heart, truly God is good to Israel. Or put it personally, truly God is good to me. God is good to me. Yes, I sought the cleansing of the blood. I want to be holy. I want to walk with him. I'm endeavouring to do so. And I can say, beyond a peradventure of a truth, certainly God is good to me. And that will lead us forward. That will help us when we come to pray, when we come to seek the face of God.